So why don't you guys buckle up and join the ride because we're gonna have some fun going green. And Abby said, you shouldn't commit illegal acts except perhaps at night and with your parents' permission. Your advice is making less sense than usual. Well, the important thing is family and friendship, honesty, values, and no one got arrested. You see this jerk? This is the same thing. Krapotkin was the same jerk, and Bakuni was the same jerk. Not good. Not good, I'm telling you. It was a, he was a very good dancer. This is a low life. George Orwell, who definitely didn't like socialism of any kind, warned us against it. He wrote books that said that totalitarianism is bad and that sticking with old ideas is good. I got news for you. You gotcha. The yeah. jail population again. I did not know that. I, I never thought you'd lose a Stalin debate. I, 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 you never expect to walk into one. Sure. So. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only Stalinists call the Trotskyist a Trotskyite. And I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. Because I'm literally a communist. Well, you know how it is. The main thing is to get those juicy likes and subscribes. And we can get some more of that sweet, sweet communist money rolling in. You know how it is, bro. Gotta get that communist dollar, gotta make it to the top. Just imagine somebody saying under cannibalism or under slavery or under dictatorship. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they'd be wrong. There is something you can do about it. You can get beyond these archaic systems and move closer and closer to fulfilling human capacities. And that's what we need to do. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Let me just finally call in my co-host. Do do do. There you are. Yep, I'm in. All right, we're into the matrix. Welcome. So we are live. Okay, I was just gonna start doing the intro again. Um, this program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. I am a revolutionary, as Fred Hampton would, using the people's mic. For uh, would say for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. So before uh, the hour, I was playing a compilation because our stream is down, Mike, uh, here at the station. Okay. Uh, a compilation of Fred Hampton, Black Panther Party. One of their main deals, especially. Why don't I pivot and ask you? You on your Twitch stream interviewed the Star Trek communist. His name is Will Lynn. How was that? Yes, I did. It was a lot of fun. It was really cool to have him on. We just talked, and we talked a little bit before, and I, I had a little bit of connection issues, so I was able to talk to him a little bit before we were able to go live. I liked that as a... He was he could be very clear and not beat around the bush about like what kind of Trotskyist he was. And what yeah. his political strategy is that he's kind of doing, particularly focusing in on the political education part yeah. of, say, the Black Panther Party platform or the Trotskyist agenda, as it is, you could say. Because the, the right. thing about like most of these like splinter orgs is that they, they really just wanted to focus on one particular thing and they right. need to be different kind of working groups to do that. Or they, they should be able to be in one group and have different committees like one's doing political education and one's doing union organizing why do right. they have to like all be doing the same thing it doesn't make sense yeah yeah um, I, 
would agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, the Green Party hasn't split in 30 years probably because we are horizontal enough that we don't need everybody. We don't right. have to. We can accept that some Greens are going to cross-endorse in Ohio. We don't like it, but they do it. So on the political education side, education, of course, is not just the technical aspects um, or like what is socialism, how do we actually accomplish it, but also some liberal arts. I think liberal arts are important. And so we're going to keep going on the dystopia, utopia kind of discussion track from last week. And we're going to talk solar punk this hour and the next hour kind of aesthetic defense of like and talking about kind of what's usually missing in our discourse. Like, how is it that you have someone like uh, the Star Trek communist who I think is successful as, as a educator because he's not arguing with anonymous people? And I'm mm -hmm. seeing more of this use of Anon as the person on Facebook that you don't engage with. You just don't give them attention. If they're not going to use their name or any identity or anything that, like, tethers them to physical reality, then what's the point of arguing with them? What's the point of, like, you know, that they're just looking for attention? Um, well, which is... personally, like, I understand why he doesn't argue with them. I sort of disagree personally because mm -hmm. I enjoy the act of arguing. And a lot less now, eh, still a little bit in select instances. But I like to debate in order to try to get better at arguing. I like to argue to get better at arguing. And a lot of times... If I could find the right person, if I'm like, ooh, I want to get better at arguing against this type of ideology, and then I find a random anon who is seemingly of that ideology, I'm like, oh boy, here's some practice. I think I, um, I did he say how old he was? He said he was the upper tier of millennial, so he's probably even a little older than me. And I well, think he's married with a kid, so yeah. that's a fairly decent indicator for him. So. For us millennials in our 30s, I think. We did, because you are in your you know, lower mid-20s, right. that we already did all of that. So we're kind of done with that. It's not like you should stop, because we, we basically, we went through that internship level already, you know, mm. of, of like, we, we argue, we learn how to critically think, we learn how to defend our positions and make new positions as we go. Um, and that's kind of where the confidence of the Star Trek communist comes in, of just like, you're so mad that I'm both a fanboy and I can talk about proletarian revolution uh, or sure. rather my, my political positions and not look like a fool. Um, though there are many try to uh, say he looks like a fool, but what do they know, right? Sue. Let's talk. Um, no, early on, I think it was episode 30 something. I did an episode on solar punk. Um, which I kind of read a bit and talked at length, but now I'm kind of weaving solar punk back in. I knew I was going to revisit this someday and I'm going to revisit it as like, cause also inspiring is that I was reached out and invited to by someone on Facebook, a friend, someone I friended via a page or something. And he, he, he messaged, invited everyone, every socialist leaning person on uh, in his friends list that he could identify to help him with his dissertation that he just kind of seemed to spontaneously pitch as group discussions about what a socialist utopia or socialist future it would be like. You know, there's many different schools of thought. You know, there's the resource-based economy, of, of the, there's Paracom, there's a number of different like kind of schools of thought. And one 
general cultural, countercultural kind of milieu genre is solarpunk. And so first, to um, there are many different ways of talking about it, and we do have a great article to read or an essay. But first, let's start with what it isn't. So why don't we start with the, uh, the one on cyberpunk 2077, that corporate mess of a, pro- um, of a product. That future dystopia is old news, that one? Mm-hmm. See, something Sorry. else to talk about is um, yeah. there's a Zero Books also has these kind of dis- discussions on their uh, YouTube page on kind of utopian, socialist utopianism, but particularly utopianism in general. And one comment that I remember from the hour-long discussion, because I'm that usually either whether like is utopianism left wing or right wing, or the differences between the two, they're usually very similar in that they're usually kind of take the form of these totalitarian regimes, a lot of planning a lot of distrust of, of democracy. You know, when, when is there a de- democratic utopia? Because usually in our media, the example of the Divergent series, young adult fiction, I actually watched all three movies. And, uh, and the writer in her, in the, in the, in her like kind of post of the book is like, look, when I actually started writing this, I set out to make my ideal society. Like, how would it work? And of course, it then turns into a dystopia. Of course it does, because she wasn't thinking ideally things are democratically managed. Because that's kind of how we're all, our current society is top-down and undemocratic. It's oligarchic at the very least, so you're going to at least have a ruling class of some kind. Yeah, I have the article up now. The meme generator. Cyberpunk, and it's about cyberpunk and solarpunk. CD Projekt Red's new sci-fi action RPG, Cyberpunk 2077, is set in the dystopian Night City. As cyberpunk games go, it is pretty standard, employing all the genre's classic elements. The futuristic Night City is ruled by megacorporations, whose towering skyscrapers contrast the poverty-stricken streets below. Most characters have cybernetic implants, while high-tech gadgets dot every street corner and narrow corridor. This is cyberpunk, pure and simple. And that's the problem. There's nothing innovative about it. The cyberpunk genre emerged in the early 80s. Ridley Scott's 1982 film Blade Runner and the novel Necromancer are considered its foundational works. These revolutionary stories feature broken, morally complex to heroes taking on AI and corporations in worlds that explore hacktivism, economic disparity, addiction, and synthetic intelligence. So Cyberpunk 2077 tries to recreate these characteristics. Cybernetics uh, accessorize the piercings, ink, and threads of punk fashion. Corpos are the main enemies with militarized cops as their muscle. While hackers, fixers, and streetwise bruisers exploit the broken system however they can. However, reshaping ideas from 80s sci-fi hardly makes for something new. So, to see a cyberpunk dystopia, one need only look from or down at their smartphone. People might not plug themselves into computers through ports in their body, but most of the other technology exists. Ocular displays showing smart intel were made publicly available in 2013 with Google Glass, and now VR headsets are commonplace. 
real-world cybernetic prosthetics can connect to a person's nerves to enable a sense of touch, even as 3D printing makes everything from affordable prosthetics to bootleg weapons wildly available. Hackers have always been a part of cyberpunk, warring with corporations and governments as digital sappers tunneling through security networks. Today, they take the form of hacktivists. Most counterculture movements, including punk, have, have yep. waned appropriated into mainstream society, normalizing the cyberpunk into a bland cyberprep malaise. One of the few remaining transgressive counterculture movements, biohacking, imports sci-fi trends into reality. So the area where cyberpunk's predictions have been proven wrong is with its depiction of violent urban crime, something cyberpunk 2077 has overemphasized. The mid-20th century's violent crime waves created by poor housing conditions, poverty, and the drug trade have declined in recent decades. However, these discrepancies illustrate the most insidious aspects of the genre that came true, corporatization and economic inequality. Increasingly, powerful private interests from big oil to private security firms influence real-world governments. The, the 1980s embrace of neoliberalism prioritized corporations over people, turning dystopian fiction into reality. Cyberpunk's 2077's treatment of these issues feels simultaneously superficial, self-evident, and offensively dated. That's how I feel and about it. And 2077 is oh. about nothing. There's a plot of sorts, but it isn't about anything, he observed. Burn corpo shit is a slogan on clothing lacking any substance. The game's message has all the threadbare conviction of a t-shirt logo. Mm -hmm. Cyberpunk has nothing new to say. It no longer imagines a future, but sensationalizes present-day tech and dredges up long-dead trends. There are other versions of the future, the most notable pit of which is Solarpunk. Let's stop there. Um, so I just want to um, interrupt with a... I felt this way about the genre back like 2010, you know, when I was maybe when I was hitting age 20 that I was finding like, well, maybe like once I finally just sat through all of um, Blade Runner, the, the major cut and long cut rather, and other types of media, it's just like solar, like the cyberpunk genre was new and fresh in the eighties, in the eighties, like before I was born. And it's still, like, being used as this, look at how futuristic it is. Look at how, look at how terrible this future is. Of course, it's a discussion of today. That's what we were talking about last week. And now it's like we're bored because things are really falling apart, rather, or things are really precarious. We just don't yeah. need it. We need new. You know, we need something better. Um, yeah, so go on. So, like, so, so the, a short, a short um, mention of solar punk here. So, this new genre slash movement originally proposed in the blog Republic of the Bees. Like the bees. cyberpunk, solar punk identifies unchecked capitalism as causing many societal problems. However, it rejects cyberpunk's assumption that corporations and social hierarchies are inevitable instead embracing sustainable communities, environmental justice, and minimalism as alternatives. 
mixing art, literature, and activism. This utopian movement is interested in bright green environmentalism and anarchist philosophy. Rather than waiting for others to shape the future, it invites people to act now. An emerging genre, lunar punk, is still defining itself, but is extrapolating upon themes first addressed in solar punk. Some of the differences involve the artistic aesthetics of each subgenre, but lunar punk also emphasizes a value on spirituality, including pagan and animist practices. It also examines green energy for space flights and building anarchist communes off-world. So both solar punk and lunar punk present alternative visions of the future. And imagining new futures is the entire point of science fiction. Cyberpunk 2077's digital chrome and countercultural focus were edgy in the 80s. Now they're tired tropes. Visions of the future from a time of the Commodore 64 when neoliberalism was in its infancy. To build a better future, one must imagine better alternatives. We must do the impossible. Yeah. So uh, oh, the lunar oh. punk thing is like, how do we have this, like a Star Trek, right? But without the connotations of imperialism, like what, what kind mm. of resource extraction has to happen in the asteroid belt? Well, you there know? are those that argue that Star Trek already uh, shows that effectively at, with its uh, Federation style system. Yeah. But we're never shown the Federation Parliament, only that there's a president. Oh, and the and a, oh yeah, and the and Starfleet has a council, but does the and the Federation, I suppose, has a council. Um, so it's more, I suppose, that was more in common with the UN, in that like yeah. there are reps from each world, but like what kind of deliberations do they really have? But you know, it's it's a Star Trek started as a Western space Western. So let's see. I think so. Let's, Go to now. So, Eflux and essay by Avina Wilk is ornamenting solar panels a crime. Now, this is an inside joke for architects. Uh, there was an essay published in 1900 or so by an Austri Austrian archi modernist architect, and it was called uh, "Ornament is Crime." So, and it was basically lambasting uh, the over excesses of imperial architecture, the neo-historicists, you know, you got the new Greek columns, like what, what's the point? This has nothing to do with today's industrial revolution. You know, we need an architecture that represents the industrial revolution. And that's how you get modernist architecture. But he was also pretty racist and imperialist at the same time, like saying like, look at the de degra de degradation of people who ornament themselves with tattoos and earrings and like th those are the true backwards people blah 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 what was the i just want to get to the opening point here so yeah so he starts with a point about how dystopias are kind of a luxury good now uh similar to basically like cyberpunk 2077 when i like when this game was announced and everyone was super excited i know they were excited because it's kind of nostalgia factor because it was based on a, a tabletop game of the same name i guess from the 80s so it's not really about playing this game as much as like just a continuation of one's childhood and rest of development whatever but uh, that aside by now dystopia may have become a luxury genre indulging in miserable future scenarios is not something everyone has time for william gibson 
writer of Necromancer, recently repurses his own adage, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. To say that dystopia is not very evenly distributed either. For most, the dystopia, the dystopias the privileged entertain themselves with, are old news. In the current political landscape, quoting, when we are all living in the shadow of at least half a dozen wildly science fiction scenarios, this is quoting Gibson again, and while Hollywood harps on every version of paranoia to construct a thousand dystopias according to formula, dwelling on dystopia could be seen as downright lazy. Along with the resources to sit around and ponder the future of humanity, shouldn't there become some responsibility to invent actionable proposals as opposed to cautionary tales? Since cautionary tales, as kind of talked about last week, kind of end up being reactionary and pro-status quo. Enter the coalescing movement of solarpunk. In, the, in 2015, a blog post titled Solarpunk Wants to Save the World, a writer, Ben Valentine, summarizes, Solarpunk is the first creative movement consciously and positively responding to the Anthropocene. That's man-based era. When no place on Earth is free from humanity's hedonism, Solarpunk proposes that humans can learn to live in harmony with the planet once again. Solarpunk is a literary movement, a hashtag, a flag, and a statement of intent about the future we hope to create. So it's not just literary as a genre like cyberpunk started as, but kind of consciously like, oh yeah, we're going to take all these different things. Like, cause punk was a, a music fashion scene. And then you had cyber sci-fi fiction. We're, we're wrapping it all together because in the internet, everything's already culture is all integrated anyway. So the first stirrings of solar punk emerged online around 08 with a noticeable expansion around 2014. That's when I, moi, got into it. At least until now, its dispersed internet in origin, origins have mostly kept it from a single authoritative definition or decisive political bent, uh, although it mostly leans anarchist. Some solopunks invoke the spe uh, specificated futures of Donna Haraway and the disaster utopias of Rebecca Stonet, while others say their ideals fit squarely within the wider tradition of the decentralist left, a.k.a. anarchist practice. Some cite the sci-fi canon of the new weird, or the cli-fi, meaning climate fiction. One claims post-nihilism, you know, being optimistic and, like, things matter. And a recent book adds dragons to the mix, so it's obviously very diverse. Some, like, are based around kind of a soft apocalypse, things declining, but declining in a way that isn't, doesn't entail mass starvation, or there is a little bit, but there's struggle, but then it has a happy ending instead of the more ambiguous endings of cyberpunk. Like many born digital movements, especially those tolerant of a nominity, Solarpunk grapples with that, with what inclusivity means in practice. If everyone's responsible for it, no one's responsible for it, too. Now, as a movement, a hashtag, and a flag, Solarpunk aims to transform science fiction into a science action, an emerging aesthetic sensibility to undergrid and drive uh, an impulse. As a genre style, Solarpunk's visual representation is distinctly architectural and an infrastructural one. Like it's about the things that undergird our society. Uh, while many bloggers emphasize the importance of the local, localism or regionalism, it is necessarily global in concept. Awareness of planetary scale environmental destruction is precisely where it derives a sense of urgency, the urgency of climate change and climate catastrophe. In the face of perceived crisis, perceived 
that solar punk demands constructive, instructive fictions. Fictions that are not shy about their intended feasibility. Now, this is usually like a response to how like we grew up with cyberpunk and other types of dystopian fiction, and it always features a hero toppling the regime or something of that nature, uh, kind of unrealistic. It's a fantasy, but we but like it left us completely unprepared and uneducated in how to actually do struggle, actually do politics. How do you actually fight an oppressive regime? You know, it, it all right. just becomes tropes of guerrilla warfare, completely ignoring how guerrilla fighters actually kind of won their struggles because they actually had a political right. arm too. They, you know, made a coalition. Stories of science fiction oppressaging the future are legion, meaning like they're, they're predicting. Uh, or, or rather, they, they predict, but then they inspire other people to actually make it happen. From Arthur C. Clarke's satellites and geostationary orbit to minority ports, movement-controlled interfaces, and Gibson's cyberspace, though the way that we used the word uh, is not really true to his concept. These myths are often invoked as some form of oblique validation of the John Revia authors' their prowess, which itself is a dubious way to evaluate a work of art. You know, how true did it become? Well, that's not why they wrote it. And true, of course, fiction and reality always reciprocity inf influence each other. They intertwine and merge. The word for that is dialectic. Science fiction is an Ouroboros, writes Claire Evans, and yet prediction dif differs from plan. In general, Solarpunk desires the propositional, and to do so, it leans towards the positive and the optimistic. Several popular science fiction authors express solarpunkish con convictions, whether consciously aligning themselves with the term or not. Anil Stevenson founded Project Hieroglyph in 2011, an initiative to create science fiction that will spur innovation in science and technology. So very prefigurative. In an essay describing the project, often referenced as a core solarpunk text, Stevenson laments the lack of large scientific leaps over recent decades, arguing that, for all the Silicon Valley talk of disruption, real progressive innovation has largely stalled by corporate and academic decision-making aimed to minimize risk, not to mention copyright laws. Mm. Where's my donut-shaped space station? Where's my ticket to Mars? Among others, uh, like David Graeber, so look at uh, David Graeber for an explanation of, like, where did the future go? Uh, Stevenson believes the current podacity of long-promised techno-miracles that could revolutionize society is not for lack of technological capability, but for lack of collective imagination and organization, you know, political will. The collective, or political education, in our sense. The collective ability to envision better futures has been dulled by the structural inhibitions of the only institutions with the resources to make big things happen. Science fiction, Stevenson says, can help. So who and what is solarpunk? Like his genre predecessors, steampunk and cyberpunk, solarpunk is reliant on an aesthetic that extends to architecture, design, fashion, and art. One debate that crops up in comment sections is about whether solarpunk is really a political movement or just an aesthetic one. But of course, these are not oppositional. And the aesthetics attached to the movement can work both for and against explicit political aims. So this is a debate that's always kind of occurring. And then I'm technically involved with, sort of, I'm on the Solarpunk Facebook pages. <laughs> While allowing for the plurality and contradiction of a still emergent phenomenon, 
and without making assumptions about authorship, dominant aesthetic strands are possible to identify. In a widely shared 2014 Tumblr post that has been debated but is nonetheless emblematic, user Olivia Luis described her vision. Natural colors, Art Nouveau, handcraft wares, tailors and dressmakers, streetcars, airships, stained glass window solar panels, education and tech and food growing, less corporate capitalism, less, mean none, how about none, and more small business, uh, small solar rooftops and roadways. Now that's where you lose me because solar roads are uh, bullcrap. Communal greenhouses on top of apartments. How about no roads, banned vehicles? There we go. Yeah, electric cars with old-fashioned looks. Why? No cars allowed. Walkways lined with independent shops. And again, it's it's a hodgepodge. Renewable energy powered Art Nouveau style tech life. So that's like the pure aesthetic, pure aesthetic mm. version. In its willful naivete, this ornamented vision is inflected with nostalgia for an imaginary bygone time when tech was tinkerable and free from mass production and standardization. Broadly speaking, this imaginary past belongs to an arts and crafts lineage. That, by the way, an actual aesthetic movement, arts and crafts, um, which was a response to industrialization. The arts and crafts movement fetishized the artisanal and the do-it-yourself, often on the part of the hobbyist upper classes with too much time on their hands. Which is kind of how I kind of look. Um, I don't scowl, of course, um, many of our friends, that like the, the love of 3D printing and things like that. I just find like, this is this is a like this is kind of a middle class hobby. Mm. Um, until like I see people in like the, the promises of like decentralized production is meaningless unless the poor can do it. And right. when there's a good makerspace in the library with a 3D printer, and you have poor kids making their own stuff, so they don't have to buy it at Walmart, that's good. That's that's progress. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that. Deployed today, this choice is... Oh, yeah, and chime in if you disagree with anything, um, Mike. We can hash it out. Uh, developed today, yeah. this choice is a pointed rerouting from the clean, steel-and-glass corporate universe hawked by technologists as the way the future looks, but for rich people. That evil sleekness of our techno-overlords, Olivia Luis explains, a lot of people seem to share a vision of futuristic tech and architecture that looks like an iPod, smooth and geometrical and white which, into my opinion, is a little boring and sterile, which is why I picked out an Art Nouveau aesthetic for this. Which is interesting, because Art Nouveau is still technically a modernist architectural style, because it, it was mainly in 1900 when uh, Adolf Luce, the Austrian, wrote Ornament is Crime, so that's why the title kind of mm. folds in. Because it also, again, the point of the title is that solar punk is not just about the ornaments, from this post and others like it, one gets the sense that Solarpunk's aesthetic is partly a negative one, defined by what it needs to avoid. Apple's white box futurism on one end, and on the other is scary anarchist hackery, as in the non-utopian possibility if the order of production breaks down. You know, we're all just kind of building things out of trash. Solarpunk neither wants to fantasize about the Dove Soap commercial whiteness of the wealthy space settlement in Elysium, which looks a lot like Apple's one of their HQs, nor the wretched biohacker-ridden Regatron-pumping L.A. the movie depicts on Earth Below. Side, uh, have you? Did you watch the movie Elysium, Michael? I did not, mm -hmm. but like I, I 
get what it's about. The rich people kind of decided to go off into space and leave all the poor people on the dying planet. Kind of mm-hmm. the, the tired fun. old trope. Well, they didn't leave them behind because they still control everything. Like, they still own mm-hmm. everything and use police robots to enforce things. And in LA is oh, one big absentee slum. to a planet, absentee ownership of private property to a planetary degree. Bingo. That is, oh my god, it, it's not a, it's an interesting movie. I may, I may actually want to watch it again. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't hate it. It was kind of. My girlfriend and I started standard. District Nine at one point, and mm-hmm. we were watching that. That one's a hard. The second half is hard to watch to me. Um, we didn't finish it. Yeah. Um, so we were trying to watch it over a distance, and it wasn't working well. Mm. Oh, I see. Okay, so about, between the horror of t- yeah. total technological white box opacity and that of the total technological transparency, this particular version of Solarpunk finds a semi-transparent stained glass solar panel. The possible drawback of avoiding these two problematic poles is winding up with a form another form of nostalgia in this regard or rather sorry with a form of nostalgia so like our present tense right today is uh, the world is the third world of slums favelas and you know mega cities gleaming glass towers in the downtown that are lit up and the rest of the state that is burning down that's texas Mm. and that's the whole world so to avoid that, you know, there's a danger in getting wrapped up into kind of nostalgia. Like, uh, in this regard, Solarpunk shares a patch of ground with Steampunk, whose stylistic hallmark in the tradition of early offers like H.G. Wells, Michael Moorcock, is a neo-Victorianism. A computer appears in 19th century London. A top hat-wearing engineer time travels to the present day. Swashbuckling internet sailors rescue goggled damsels. Steampunk is fascinated with technological anachronism that's a word that means uh things that don't really mix that go together or fit which often can't help but implicate the other more obviously they're problematic many have argued that steampunk tropes indicate a thinly veiled desire to return to a world order where able-bodied white guys were unburdened by housework and free to be heroes this was also a world in which leaps in industrial technology enabled european domination through colonial expansion it's the Victorian era. In other words, it's difficult to conceptually dissociate the steam by which the, that era powered empire and the patriarchy from the subversion claimed by the punk. Like, where's the punk in this? Others argue that while steampunk displays blatant nostalgia, it does so with a postmodern twist, an irony, and even a satire from a contemporary vantage point. So these two, like, views, like, is, 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 an irony, is it being ironic or is it, like, nostalgia for empire? And, and, and able-bodied men. So that's kind of like, we're, we're going to go into this in the second half with the, this other article I got. Toward this distinction, Solarpunk highlights contemporary crises. While steampunks could afford to be dilettantes, solarpunks anticipate necessity. You'll have to learn to weld when, when factory production inevitably breaks down and the floodwaters rise. In this sense, it bears similarities to its more recent cousin, cyberpunk. Cyberpunk turned away from nostalgia and undermined technological progress narratives. It introduced, as it did, the corporate dystopia and a strong sense of class struggle. Solarpunk intends to wretch science fiction from both the steampunk magical tech fantasy 
and cyberpunk's tech gone wrong. If the energy substrate of the steam era was coal and the cyber era was oil, solarpunk foreshadows the aims to anticipate environmental catastrophe by skipping the solar. A solarpunk manifesto writer, Adam Flynn, writes, If steampunk is here's yesterday's future that we wish we had, and cyberpunk is here is this future that we see coming and we don't like it, then solarpunk might be here's the future that we want and we might actually be able to get it. So who's the we? like that yeah so it goes into i'm going to skip this section it goes into kind of like the solar past um this does have an import on the discussion i'm going to point the audience to the podcast now there's your problem where some leftists discuss like uh, architectural or engineering disasters hmm. they're really funny uh it's kind of it's a, as a fun there's relaxed yeah yeah re- very relaxed tone but also just um, since they're they're leftists, they're they know like they can they can look at things structurally and stuff, right? And they just did an episode on Texas, of course. And one of the things wrong with Texas, like who's to blame? What is to blame for Texas? Is it just the gas lines? Is it, well, it's it reminds me of a story about the Chesapeake Bay and how there was a reduction in the clam populations and the ecosystems there, and when a full environmental study was done like what is causing the ecosystem damage in the chesapeake bay area why can't we collect clams and crabs like we used to the answer was like usually you expect maybe some one source of pollution like tyson chicken plants but no right it was everything everything it was all the runoff from the entire um chesapeake bay area you know all the metro areas and all that it was everything yeah and similar with texas It's everything. The entire way of building since the 60s has been based on that the building cannot function passively. That the building is comfortable so long as there is uninterrupted water, power, and and gas. These houses, a lot of these buildings, half the state is burning down. I don't know what the proportion is, but a lot of these, all these, all the cavalcative images... All these buildings are breaking down. They're either freezing solid or they're burning or there's a fire because they couldn't go three days without the the electricity or the gas to heat them because they cannot act passively. And the difference is that any building built in the 19th or early 20th century had a passive weight to it. You know, bricks, masonry. It's not just that it looks nice. It can hold heat. When the sun hits it, it holds heat, and it releases it during the night, or at least it holds onto it enough that if your power or your heat goes out for a day, you do not. It doesn't drop to thirty degrees immediately, like it takes a day or so. So it gives some resiliency in that if it takes three days to get the power back or the gas lines up, you don't freeze to death, like the right. kids that died in Texas. And that was the big, and you've had architects screaming about this problem, about how, well, at least in my school, it was part of the curriculum that we know just how big a problem energy dependent building is and how it's, it's going to kill us. (laughs) But we weren't given, it just sucks that none none, none of the architectural profession or the people who saw this coming were politically active enough to organized for the Green New Deal, or rather they 
they were trying to organize but do so in the neoliberal way of as an organization we will lobby representatives which is of course weak and didn't accomplish anything substantial look what it did for texas so the the essay goes into how victorian era that there was like a because there was the little ice age in like it was much colder back then uh, a century or so ago and that meant that you had um, if you could afford it you you built greenhouses and uh, and sunrooms and buildings that are over a century old like they they'll have conservatories and building and and rooms that are meant to gain, gain heat so they're really good even even in the winter time they're the warmer solar greenhouses were accompanied by other solar tech advancements one french mathematician invented a solar powered steam engine constructing the first functional prototype in the 1860s. It was applauded as a marvel, but the French sun wasn't strong enough to reliably power it, so he moved his experiments to um, Algiers, colonies. Technological innovation in no way guarantees a certain political implementation. Morchot's solar engine utopia was a whole continent's dystopia. The global technology he was fixated on exporting was not particularly relevant or necessary to its local implementation. If Mochat had only looked around when he arrived in Algiers, this is North Africa, he might have noticed an advanced passive thermal regulation system that was already employed in traditional Algerian architecture. And this goes for most traditional architecture. That's why uh, the great passive and lead um, regulated buildings in America uh, by modern architects there, we're studying how traditional buildings did passive heating and cooling without, um, so that the gas and electricity needed is very minimal and can be done with one or two solar panels. If Art Nouveau references become an aesthetic shorthand for a utopian future, they'll become another consumable trope for the wealthy to cling to. Another product at Hot Topic. Luckily, consistent aesthetics don't quite normalize across the imaginary, says an artist, theorist, and solar punkist. A solar punk, J. Springett. By this, he implies that solar punk will not and cannot mean one thing, no matter how memefied it becomes. It is forever open to adoption and appropriation. He emphasizes solar punk's wide-ranging influences far beyond the Art Nouveau, often readily associated with it. Saudi architect Sami Angwan's updates on traditional methods for climate control in Middle Eastern architecture, permaculturing traditions from around the world, Singaporean high-rises with living facades. Importing, importantly, the first compendium of self-described solar punk fiction has come from Brazil. I've, uh, I think I own a copy. This is not enough in itself. There is always the potential for the old patronizing learning from attitude that Western architects are known for. That's what I was describing. <laughs> and solar punk should be careful not to idealize either the Gothic high tech or the favela chic. Last paragraph. Moving ahead to the, the end. Oh, let's see, but uh, there's a, so he talks about dislocation, though, um, genre critique in this, today's world. Uh, dystopia is depoliticized when it is left as a stand-in for critique, able to be co-opted toward any ideological aim. Dystopia appeals to both the left and the right, because in the end, it requires so little by way of literary, political, or other ma imagination, asking only that you enjoy the company of people whose fear of the future aligns comfortably with your own. Chelsea Manning recently gave a talk where an audience member asked, what changed since you got out of prison? She responded, it's a dystopian novel, but it's a boring one, written by white men. 
In other words, just as important as an effective slant of the story is the question of who writes it. There was a paragraph I want to read about how, yes, um, capital doesn't get irony. Online coolness can mutate. Solarpunk's li Solarpunk lives in a very cyberspace, maybe now post-cyberspace, place. The internet may be increasingly sterile and homogenized, but there are still cracks where unexpected greenery grows. In that regard, it's worth noting that aesthetics evolve in tandem with the platforms they choose, which is to say that Pinterest might shoehorn solarpunk visions into a different mold than Tumblr or Reddit, not to mention secret Slack channels or private Google groups. I assume these exist. The trick for the self-defined stewards is finding a way to gather and harness discourse without policing, claiming, or normalizing it. This is vital because as opposed to solarpunk's still non-normalized imaginary, what is normalized, says Springett, are the crap corporate images which are the future aesthetic of global capitalism. Green cities, you know, the, the ads that you saw during the Super Bowl. Green cities of new concrete and glass with no people in them. And these, and these the world certainly needs alternatives to. In the end, defending the possibility of non-apocalypse is hard and necessary work. This is especially true given the contemporary capital doesn't understand ironic proposition very well. For instance, a Daisy Ginsburg, a designer who makes speculative projects sometimes called design fictions, has spoken about how one of her provocative projects, an e-chromie, that's its title, meant to highlight both the potential benefits and hazards of personalized biotech, was apparently taken seriously as a business opportunity by hungry investors who came across it. The critique was lost <laughs> on the section of the audience with the means to actualize it, to make it real. If critique is inevitably bound to be taken as proposal at some level, there is an argument to be made that coming up with ideas you think are positive is simply the more ethical choice. That is, if capitalist realism reigns, you might as well represent ways to better the real. So this, this comes to mind the billionaire we were talking about last week who uh, didn't seem to understand that the Matrix was a bad thing. <laughs> that was a guy who couldn't, like, didn't get the irony of it. Like, he, he just right. couldn't process it uh, from his wealth, I guess. That, like, well, what, what do people mean? Like, uh, yeah, we're making the Matrix. Like, they're saying that, like, it's a bad thing. So down in the last paragraph. That's why if Solarpunk's goal is to close the plausibility gap, positivity for its own sake, isn't necessarily the point. Being constructive need not mean being starry-eyed. The sight, the story, the style, these are not incidental to science fiction, even the hardest of the hard tech kind. Pleasant green architecture means nothing if it becomes an extension of a colonial fantasy with steam or cyber abounded. To prevent earnestness from devolving into a twee, the stories themselves need to be dislocated along with the imagery. So dislocation rather than utopianism, is what will keep Solarpunk from running off as a libertarian, seasteading vision, or an accelerationist implosion, or even just a store in the mall, and maybe even reclaim, if there is such a thing, punk. I like it. Yeah. Um, another story that I will not read in full, but reference um, is the Dominus One, Solarpunk's Utopian Architecture. So Dominus is an architecture magazine. Of course, I okay. have them bookmarked from my school days. 
And it goes through the same kind of stuff of its origins and other things, its political dimensions. Um, but it also it also mentions uh, Arcosanti, which is kind of a practical built example, an eco village in Arizona, which I really regret not visiting when I had the chance. Oh. Um, my my parents took me to Talias and West, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright design place instead. But I only learned about Arcosanti later in school when I basically did the equivalent of write a paper on it. It wasn't just a paper, but the project was design a building that fits in with this place. Hmm. It wasn't assigned to me. It was it was totally like freeform and like pick an iconic building and design like an addition to it. So I'm like, this is the iconic architecture I'm interested in because they're basically these half half domes that were made with just like you fill a balloon and then you put concrete on it and it's really low embodied energy. And uh, like slowly it. built uh, Arco Santi. Check it out. Uh, linked in the in the sources. I think in the next, I'll, I'll wait till the next ecology episode or, or future ecology episodes. But I also also want to point out that uh, solar punk isn't just like high tech. In fact, it's almost kind of like well, I mean that's one of the debates. And Low Tech Magazine is kind of my source for either debunk like one of the sources I have for debunking the problematic points of like vertical farming and all this stuff that has way more energy and resources involved in it than it should because they look cool, but maybe capital, maybe some investment firms are into it or something like that. Like it's, it seems like a fur, like a, a good idea when you start, but then when you actually start like considering what it really takes and in my thesis year, wasn't my thesis year. I think it was the last one. Somebody like somebody always does a vertical farm, or somebody does. And I was looking at it. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Like, why? I mean, having farms in the city is kind of the goal. Like, why do you need a farm in the city? We just need intensive gardening, and we can, you know, whatever. Or farms on the rooftops. We already have all that space. We don't need to build a tower with elevators. Conveyor belts and automatic. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of, it's just another big machine that can break down. Actually, maybe now I'll do the um, mention that uh, this is a community radio station. Please support us so we can expand and have better infrastructure ourselves. Something a little more resilient as well. Um, we want to create and endorse, not endorse, we want to build a mesh network peer-to-peer internet and stuff like that. Uh, it's WCAALP, randarts.org. We want members, do-paying do members. That's how things really get off the ground, not just single donations. Um, the last 10 episodes of this podcast and show are uh, are on uh, 3lefts.news. The last 10 are on all podcasting apps. The full archive is at the website, 3lefts.news. And we're also on all sorts of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And then uh, there's also the Twitch, which we're currently streaming on right now.
Okay, and we're back. Welcome to the Three Left Show, show for leftist analysis and political education, whatever, news. But today we're recovering liberal arts, uh, arts, uh, literary, and other things, aesthetics. So yeah, so I wanted to uh, wrap up the solar punk uh, part, because I did, I did want to include this. From Roar Magazine, it's the stories we need, pan-African social ecology, which... Actually, it's not a solar punk book at all, but it's it's kind of when social ecology comes up that that's like kind of what comes to mind when it comes to like what what is solar punk really trying to achieve social ecology, society, and politics. So, and it's about storytelling, of course, too. So, how about can you uh, do you have that up from the link I sent you? Yeah, sorry, I was in the middle of formulating an argument in a in another chat group that I did not expect. I, it was a leftist group and someone was loudly misunderstanding the labor theory of value. And I had to uh, knock some sense, sense into them. them. Like, be like, excuse me, but that is uh, not what you think it is. It is. Can you, can you expound? I'm actually, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, political education oh, yeah. is, is a long slog because you, you, it does not help that you have people who think they, they're they're educated on a topic that maybe they they know something mm-hmm. and they're so, actually not they're miseducated miseducated or, or 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 we have to assess are we talking about this correctly if it's confusing people so easily, but or or is it right. just the medium? So the group that this is in is um, the leftists your uncle warned you about. Oh yeah, which I love it. And the post says, group discussion time, what radicalized you slash pushed you further to the left? Yeah, this is this is a staple conversation. It's like, it's and, a good icebreaker, you know? Yeah. And I say that um, what pushed me to the left was learning about the labor theory of value. And some guy says... That's not radicalizing. How could you be radicalized by that? <laughs> no, 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 not even, not even. He goes, to be clear... Labor theory of value is essentially a function, is that value equals time spent, where the value of something is the function of someone's labor, where their labor is equivalent to the time spent on something. In the more sophisticated model, this time spent includes the time spent educating oneself in order to perform a task, and so on and sounds, so on. Sounds very wordy. I, uh, is he, is well, he being is funny? Wordy. No, what he is saying is that his understanding of the labor theory of value is that labor is valuable because it is laborious and time was spent on it, which is absolutely not what the labor theory of value says. Sounds like a tautology. I, uh, exactly. A, a position I, that falls in on itself and doesn't mean anything. And so my reply is that that is absolutely not what the labor theory of value is at all. That is the most common straw man of the labor theory of value, but not actually the argument that labor theory makes. The argument made by labor theory of value is that the value of a commodity was created by the same labor that is used to create that commodity. In terms of raw material, it's the value required to transform it from its natural state into the commodity form. Sure, water has value, but in order to purchase it, there is some amount of labor that is required to either bottle it or to install the pipes to get it to you. The fact that useless labor and that some labor is more valuable than other labor is not a contradiction to the labor theory of value in the slightest. So I kind of jumped a little, but I covered most of what 
the conversation, sure. I wanted to segue to the solar punk pages that I interact with. One that just doesn't count. One is simply Art Nouveau around the world. But Art Nouveau, to be clear, is, uh, to clarify, is an architectural style from Europe in 1900 that was kind of the luxury apartments of its day. You know, you'll notice that they're all very expensive-looking houses or buildings or commercial structures, uh, com- you know, department buildings and things like that. They're not things that were vernacular or things that, like, were built by, you know, for it's not worker housing, I can tell you that. But could one build worker housing or common um, public housing in an Art Nouveau style? When I look at the public housing being built right now, it's being done in the almost kind of what I would call a ticky-tack eco, light eco style, where it's like we're going to put a green roof but only on part of it, and we're going to say it's like, you know, it's kind of eco-tech, but there's these elements that just, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking of a particular uh, expansion of uh, public housing that our local authority actually built. They actually do build new public housing now and then. It just takes them a decade or so. The uh, another page is Solar Punk Collective, and there's I think there's a Solar Punk page that is uh, explicitly anarchist. Since some Solar Punk pages or groups are very mishmash of when it comes to politics, um, there's a debate on the political uh. message or the content that like no, this is about decentralizing. This is about fighting the Fed or breaking up America, whatever it is. Uh, you know, localism. Um, sure. Not just not just less corporate uh, co- uh, corporatism, but no corporatism. You know, <laughs> how far do you want to go? If if it, if solar is going to be mainstream, you know, there's a fear that it's it's like, well, it's not like we just we just want a little bit more of a humanist capitalism. So this is from Roar, and it's titled "The Stories We Need: Pan African Social Ecology." It's a book review. So, in his new book, U.S.-based activist uh, Modibo Kadile uh, reveals a wealth of horizontalist black history that white social ecologists tend to dismiss and overlook. This is us doing black history month. At the, at the yeah. very end of it, <laughs> I'm getting it in. So, in the world of political theory, storytelling is something of a lost art. Modern Western thought views political institutions as systems, which, much like buildings or bridges, act in ways that are consistent, predictable, and replicable. Writing about politics, then, becomes a master of describing things, not people and their collective actions. Today's universities train predominantly white, middle-class people to embrace this quote-unquote scientific conception of politics. But to almost everybody outside of the university... Political theory is just plain boring. In reality, there is nothing consistent, predictable, or replicatable about politics. Political events are firestorm of passion, loathing, anger, tragedy, hilarity, and exhilaration in which nothing is certain. Political life lends itself to narrative representation as well as literary elements like protagonists, imagery, and pacing. Its stories remain devalued as a serious way to convey political knowledge. Sadly, this is only to the detriment of social movements. How can a popular, broadly democratic ecology movement 
possibly form when the vast majority of people can neither understand nor enjoy the obtuse way that we talk about politics. Social ecology is certainly less guilty of bad writing than your run-of-the-mill political scientist. Murray Bookchin indeed wrote elegant prose, but it nonetheless suffers much of the left from a dearth of powerful narratives. Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, The Dispossessed, stands as one exception that proves this rule. Friends and enemies in struggle and action. This is precisely why the collection Pan-African Social Ecology is so important and instructive to social ecologists and the left in general. Drawing upon traditions of Black and African storytelling as well as Pan-African thought, Kadile consistently shows rather than tells us his message. He states complex conceptions in clear, simple language and then illustrates them through engaging stories and rich vignettes. For example, in the third chapter, you find your allies in the streets. Kadile makes an important critique of how the left thinks about identity and oppression. Many ostensible quote-unquote radicals expose democratic and communitarian values, but behave in authoritarian power-hungry ways when provided the opportunity. At the same time, some activist circles insist that people with relative social privilege can never be true allies to groups over whom they hold power. Men can never truly support women, or whites can never truly support blacks, and so forth. I have Is been it, in I have been in circles like that. Both kinds of circles, by the way. Well. In fact, it this this is kind of the broadly like what's wrong with the left and our organizing. I mean, I, I think it's not just these two things, but they, they can go in those two categories very broadly. Well, I um, feel like it is the upper tier of radical liberalism that when it's in left circles, it's kind of like yeah, it distrusts right wing liberal deviation. Yeah, it, it but, distrusts it distrusts democracy or distrusts, and then the other side uh, or well, a different it's an type of like the individual i the identity of the individuals rather than looking at the system saying that oh it's the straight white men that are a problem instead of the system of capitalism that the patriarchy sits upon but at the same time this this uh this the finger reading mentions right. that thinking in terms of just systems and things also kind of leaves out the well, we'll, we'll talk about later the, the pathos. Um, okay. So carry on. All right. So is this really true? How can we ever really prove or disprove such grave conclusions? Such questions swirl on the internet daily. But allyship, Kadile writes, boils down to knowing who is your friend and who is your enemy in struggle and in action. And then fleshes out the nuance of this point via several anecdotes including one especially impactful moment that took place during the 1973 student strikes and campus takeover for black studies at the University of Detroit. So, quote, There was a group of white guys called the Ohio White Cracker Rock and Roll Band. They were in the student union building with us, trying to get people to understand what we were doing. We were being heckled. A fight was about to break out, so this guy, G uh, Jesus, said to us, we'll take care of it, just tell us what to do. So he had his boys, you know, and they had their long hair and everything. They went over to this one guy, white guy who was heckling. 
grabbed him and took him to the other room. I ended up having to go in there and rescue him because they were really about to hurt this guy. That's how you determine your allies. You have to be in motion, you know? Ally for what? You got to be doing something to have an ally. So that's the end of the quote. I want to. I just wanted to interject before I forget again that, like the 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 line of like you don't it boil like solidarity allyship knows who who's on your side. And when it comes to the way politics are done, it's all very distrustful. It's impossible to know who's your ally, or at least it's not impossible. I feel like I can't be the ally, or I don't know if they're my ally in struggle. If someone say is interacting with the democratic party or they're a committee person mm-hmm. or they're running for office as a democrat it's just it muddies things to the point where it's like they're, yeah they're doing something but are they doing something for the struggle are they doing something they think they are because well you get things done by working with them being entryist and being in there but it's, it's their game it's not game change In today's world, where abstracted online debate tends to shape people's perceptions to the detriment of common experience, Padilla's reminder is refreshingly simple. If politics is about action, and our political character and values, be it an individual organization or group, appear while in motion, you cannot determine whether someone is an ally based on their appearance or even their words. Social ecologists should listen well to Kadile, not only because his book is written in an engaging narrative style, but also because it reveals a wealth of horizontal black history that white social ecologists tend to dismiss and overlook. A roadmap to a black social, uh, black-led social ecology. What makes Kadile's reflections upon his political experiences so remarkable is their grounding in a rich, coherent conception of so- social ecology. Bookchin nerds will be pleased to find discussion of federated municipal assemblies, radical citizenship, post-scarcity, eco-technology, and natural evolution advanced via ethics and human reason. Kadile is obviously fluently versed in Bookchin. However, crucially, he arrives at many of these conclusions via the writings of black libertarian intellectuals, C.L.R. James and Kimathi Muhammad, are especially prominent. Although the lines are sometimes fragmented and faint, what one finds in this book is ultimately a roadmap towards a black-led social ecology. Those who would diminish or deride such an intellectual project ignore the cumulative wisdom of decades of feminist, queer, black and brown, indigenous, revolutionary struggle, and they do so only to their own detriment. Kadile deepens and expands the relevance of social ecology by demonstrating its importance to decolonization. By the same token, he points out the intimate relationship between global colonization and ecological destruction. In his own words, quote, Now, in the 20th century, we can confidently say uh, hierarchically organized societies cannot solve or even adequately address ecological crises. In fact, such societies, with their nation-states, empires, and capitalist markets, have shown themselves to be the cause of widespread ecological destruction. And Pan-Africanism, as recent history demonstrates, is going to be defined by the unity or clustering of black-ruled nation-states and black capitalism. It serves no purpose other than the continued oppression of black exploited classes under black elites. 
However, the concept of Pan-Africanism is perfectly compatible with the development of locally decentralized and directly democratic institutions in areas where ordinary African people live and work. In other words, we need a Pan-African social So many readers will no doubt notice similarities between Pan-African social ecology and the project of democratic confederalism by Kurdish political leader Abdullah Oshalan. Uh, in the fourth chapter, Black Resistance and the State, Kadile levels a scathing reproach of Black elitism and authoritarian tendencies in the Black liberation movements of the late 20th century. Centuries ago, colonial officers would select men from conquered egalitarian communities to act as chieftains to represent, uh, meaning control, the colonized populations on their behalf. For Kadile, the triumph of nation-states in post-colonial Africa and the Caribbean and participation in the ruling classes only perpetuates these colonial logistics and oppressive social relationships. That was logic, yeah. Kadile's book is one more testament that a collective awakening is taking place to jettison the states and redefine global history from the bottom up. For the, all this, direct democracy by itself can hardly promise social and ecological restoration. Democracy is not a matter of implementing formulaic procedures and structures. It's a matter of fostering bonds of mutual support and the sharing of communal power. It is no mystery, then, why Kadile chooses to explain social ecology's core concept via his own political experiences. Narratives create human intimacy across the color line, education, time, and space. Through stories, Kadile primes readers to participate in the intimate, listening-based politics that he advocates. We need these kinds of stories in the milieu of social ecology, as well as the broader left and beyond. Awesome. So there's a lot to digest in there, obviously. Yeah, sure. This will be linked in the sources. You can look at it yourself. Mention of previous topics, all kinds of stuff. That's why I really like it. Now to move on, um, how tied into it? Well, there's about narratives and stories and all and stuff like that. And now I want to talk about a post. It was kind of a defense of conceptual art. Michael, are you aware of the meme where someone taped a banana to a wall and sold it for a lot of money? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm aware. Okay, so this starts with a reference to that. Recently, there was a dust-up over The Comedian, a piece in which Italian artist uh, Acanalan taped a banana to the wall of a gallery and sold it for $120,000. A gallery patron made additional news by pulling the banana off the wall and eating it. Interviews made it clear that everyone involved was trolling. The saga was catnip to people who believe that conceptual art is full of crap. Now, Catalan is clearly full of crap himself, but this work begs the question, could an artist ever walk into a gallery with some snacks, say, this may look like something I picked up from the bodega on the way here, but it is in fact my art, behold my art, and not uh, be full of full crap? In my opinion, the answer is yes. Here's an example. My opinion is heavily informed by this 91 piece by Felix Gonzalez Torres. It's entitled, uh, but it's a called, but it could be called Portrait of Ross in L.A. It is a pile of free candy, 
Visitors are invited to take one piece of candy. Frivolous, right? The piece may be staged in any gallery that follows a few simple rules. The most important rule is that the pile should weigh 175 pounds. 175 pounds was the healthy weight of Gonzalez Torres' partner, Ross, who died of AIDS. Gonzalez Torres had a Roman Catholic background, and taking the candy is meant to be an act of communion. The patron partakes in the sweetness of Ross while participating in his diminishment and torturous death. The decision to use candy has political significance. In 1991, public funding for the arts and public funding for AIDS research were both the hottest and of hot-button issues. HIV-positive gay male artists were being targeted for censorship. Gonzalez Torres was desperate to be heard, and part of the logic of Untitled was that you can't censor free candy without looking ridiculous. The fact you could replicate this piece makes it indestructible. Gonzalez Torres had an intuitive, ahead-of-its-time understanding of virility that came from dealing with an actual virus rather than the Internet. I've never seen this piece staged, but I think about it all the time. The artist Sally is no longer with us. But we will always have the most brilliant, heartbreaking free candy to ever be heaped in a corner. The key to conceptual art is storytelling. How well can you tell a story without words or proper picture? The banana on the wall sucks because it doesn't tell a story about anything but attention-seeking and greed. I can't stand the banana guy or the media coverage surrounding it because stunts like that make people close their minds to unconventional art and storytelling, which can be just as sophisticated and moving as the more conventional kind. There's a, in this Facebook post, there's then a picture of a 175-pound pile of candy in a corner. So this is kind of a defense of conceptual art and ties into that whole capital doesn't get irony thing and now into a deep dive of that kind of not problem is is, is too lame a word but um the issue of not just art criticism but like how we think about art and our own narratives and stuff like that so from current affairs Oh, yeah, and I also wanted to clarify um, that the previous article used the word libertarian uh, a number, a few times. This is to be taken as an equivalent of anarchist or a bottom-up leftist, because that's what a libertarian really is, and you know that better than anyone, right, Michael? Right. Using it in the proper way. Now, the, the piece is called Satanic Panics and the Death of Mephos. Being alive has perhaps never been more confusing, especially because we have lost the tool that might help us make sense of it. This was written by an Asling McRae. Filed this month. So this is going to be the rest of the hour. I may skip around, but... So a while back, I read a book called Dangerous Games, What the Moral Panic Over Role-Playing Games Says About Play, Religion, and Imagined Worlds, by one Joseph Laycock. The book covers in extensive detail the creation and rise in popularity of D&D, Dungeons and & Dragons, and other role-playing games in the 70s and 80s, and the subsequent backlash against them led by the religious right in America, who view the players of such games as participants, Satanism. I'm actually, by any, am I actually not a fan, I'm actually not a fan of tabletop games. I'm talking, I could say that personally, the writer is also saying it. I have the nerdy disposition for it, but not the patience. But I will read anything about the satanic panic that's put in front of me, and I enjoy the book. More importantly, 
there was one line in the book that struck with me. Are you are you uh, familiar with the Satanic Panic, Mike? Of course. It's when yeah. uh, all the parents thought that the kids were being gripped by Satanism. And it was just Marilyn Manson doing weird stuff in music videos and everyone overreacting. It, it was a lot of things like that, but yeah. Especially as the threat of communism was waning. Um, right. And or, yeah, yeah, since communism couldn't really be an actual threat anymore, there were no communist spies or whatever, or um, that, that stuff wasn't really happening. Like the, the whole the threat had to shift. This is something Michael Moore like kind of covered in uh, Bowling for Columbine and stuff. More importantly, there was one line in the book that struck me, not even a pivotal line for that matter, more of an aside than anything, but an observation that I have thought about countless times ever since. The book quotes a Karen Armstrong, a writer on comparative religion, on the difference between what the Greeks called mythos and logos. Logos is, roughly speaking, knowledge gained through the world of science, reason, and observation, through which we can understand the material world and the things in it the laws of cause and effect, how to navigate the more literal aspects of the world. We know, for example, that if we are feeling hungry, it is because of certain chemical processes in our brain and our digestive system, signaling our bodies that we need substance, so on. We know that if we drop some food while eating, gravity will cause it to fall into our laps. On the other hand, Mephos has been described by Armstrong as having to do with the more elusive aspects of human experience all of that which cannot quite be explained in terms of the literal, the mundane, or the rational. It covers stories of supernatural events and experiences, which are not literally true by the standard of Logos, but are meaningfully true in some other sense, psychologically, emotionally, spiritual. You know, narratives of revolution, dystopia and utopia, trying to tie things together. So how did Mephos and Logos explain evangelical Christians' hatred of spooky monster games? According to Armstrong, fundamentalist forms of religion, such as schools of Christianity that dominated the Reagan years, collapsed these two worlds of understanding into one. One might think that Mephos was the preferred realm of the evangelicals, since they believe so strongly in God, or the spiritual, but no, it's actually the Logos that they love. In Mephos, they had no time or use for. For example, other schools of Christianity could understand Genesis as truth without it being literally true. God could have handed down to mortals a story about the Earth's creation that imparted some kind of divine meaning without negating what Logos told us about evolution and cosmology. Both the fundamentalists and the Bible being true not meant oh the Bible being true meant that the earth must have been made in seven days. Because the Bible is the word of God and every word of it is true, and true means materially, logically, and scientifically true. The laws of our mundane world had to be the laws for which God was seen to. Every piece of proof that the earth was older than 6,000 years old has been found through Logos to have been debunked in the world of Logos. Or at least an imitation of it, hence the building of the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. Um, the Ark Experience. I remember I used to, before I became a leftist, mm -hmm. in my, the subject of my ire was capitalism, well, one of my, I became like a, an edgy atheist for a time, and creationism was my uh, big ire. Well, I considered my uh, position or my identity as part of the Jewish community 
as being separate from my religiousness. I didn't believe in God, but I consider myself part of the Jewish community. Well, well so, Mike, we're, we're birds of a feather because we, yeah. we're exactly the same. Though this, this will go into how, um, you'll see, but, uh, I, I left uh, the new I, atheist. I we, we all, we all outgrew new atheism for probably the same reason that, yeah. um, like you, you, rather you become leftists or you become flat earthers. Mm. Um, or rather for the same reason that this writer doesn't mention flat earth, but it, for the same reason there's a creation museum, the flat earth movement grew because more and more there's no capacity for Mephos. It's all logos. So if you don't see something like you're trying to understand the world without not subjective, the, 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 the metaphorical art, you know, the, you can't just pile of candy and say like this, this is actually something meaningful because it's not just literally a pile of candy or literally a banana. It's actually about something else. Did you ever see the Bill Nye Ken Ham debate? I believe so. I just don't remember anything about it because uh, it was kind of boring. It was, it was kind of this. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no please. It right at the time of my edgy atheism phase. So watching mm-hmm. Bill Nye debate against the guy who created the Creationist Museum. Right. That like scratched exactly the itch I needed. It does. Go on. It, it, I would actually put it in terms of like the height of like the possibilities of that movement uh, or of that, that um, milieu. This is where we destroy the creationism with facts and logic. Right. But what happened after that debate? Did anything change? Right. And that's, I think that's where I finally, it was actually, it's it's funny that you mentioned it actually, because that's probably the moment where I literally like, I was already on my way out, but this is where like I stopped Mm-hmm. being any like i think the same liking any of it like it was towards the end of my crescendo excited i was excited watching it and then like afterwards i was like cool i watched it now like what now what now all i feel like all it did was uh, give a platform to ken ham to expose or uh, to expunge his creationist delusions and thus, and the, yeah, it was the beginning. Yeah. And that debate, that debate around that particular um, platforming was kind of how you get cancel culture or the, the, the backlash to the new atheist failure to achieve anything uh, besides kind of right scratch our own itches uh, right. to, to own our political enemies or opponents, the people who, who are pressing or the, pe- the rich people who... Can, are part of the oligarchy and we're not so mm-hmm. there is a class antagonism there but it, it was un- completely un- un- understood because that's that's mephos it's it's symbolic to, to think of class analysis or it's not it's not so literal so the attempts to explain the dimensions of noah's ark and exactly how to pair every animal on earth managed to fit in there <laughs> This also goes some way towards explaining the prosperity gospel, the belief that material wealth is proof of God's favor and flows towards the righteous. After all, money is how we value the material world, so why not in the next world, too? Whatever measure of value could there be? Now, Laycock, the author of Dangerous Games, draws on Armstrong to explain why fundamentalist evangelicals were frightened and suspicious to eat D&D along with any other form of art that played heavily on supernatural themes and gathered an intensely invested fan base, 
such as heavy metal, since all things magical and mystical had to be interpreted in literal terms. They could not understand why people would feel so drawn into alternative worlds and be so fascinated by talk of summoning spells and pentagrams unless they were actually talking about summoning literal demons, the actual demons with the horns and everything. This belief was bolstered by a few tragic cases of suicides, teen suicide, with interests in these types of art. Of course, people of all kinds of interests suffer from mental health issues and deal with difficult circumstances that drive them to take their own life. It was too complicated for many to imagine that games might have been an escape for them or dark magic a way to, of healing or expressing truths they already felt. That's most fandoms. In fundamentalist forms of religion, the stories from the sacred texts are true, and anyone else, else's form of mythos is at best nonsense that should be forbidden, and at worst, an existential threat to the real truth. But anthropologists and sociologists have long pointed out that belief and action inspired by mythos are not only entirely compatible with the world of logos, logic, but provide multiple important social functions. Please note that while Armstrong tends to use mythos in a narrow sense to refer to more specifically pre-modern mythologies, I will be using it in a broader sense to refer to any non-literal, non-rational parts of our understanding that includes rituals, customs, any superstition, but also storytelling, art, and transcendent experiences. In her seminal 1966 book, Purity and Danger, an analysis of concepts of pollution and taboo, Mary Douglas describes how societies around the world have historically built their own concepts of the clean and the unclean, alongside myths and rituals which maintain and enforce social boundaries. Kosher law is one of those. They do this not necessarily out of ignorance of how things really work, but because these concepts fill the margins between what can be literally accounted for and therefore fully controlled. The book also explains how rituals and symbolism give meaning and order help us mentally find a place for complex market concepts. Now, this is actually one of those arguments made by the evangelical right in fighting new atheists. Like, I think their best argument that they should have just focused on entirely was your purely rational worldview does not give people any meaning in the world or doesn't, it doesn't make for good social structures, right? Now, the retort that we myself would and others would give is well just because we need these things don't yeah doesn't mean we need to base it on something made up or fictional we can make up something else something on our own leftism is kind of my conclusion of of that journey of struggle of doing politics and having a narrative and meaning in my life making the world Mm -hmm. better and continuing humanity and, and, and art is, is all part of that. Now, if you're reading this and thinking that you're not really a mythos kind of person because you're not religious and have never had a supernatural experience, you're incorrect. Do you support a sports team? Do you feel ecstatic when we, the players or whatever, win? Do you have an old shirt you should really throw out but refuse to do so because it feels special in some way? Do you feel people should treat you especially nicely on your birthday? Do you avoid stepping on cracks? Have you ever been moved by a piece of art in a way that can't be put into words? Do you ever get excited when you find an unusually large potato chip? Have you ever stopped on a perfectly ordinary street in the rain and looked at the ordinary houses or a certain whirl of tree bark and thought, my God, the world is here and it really is alive. 
Not only do we need Mephos to help us find these moments of deeper meaning, we need it to give shape to the total mass that is our lives. If you look back on your own life, you're probably mentally separate into different phases, considering certain moments to be turning points, or classifying some phases as happier, more miserable. Realistically, our lives tend to turn from happy to sad to neutral in periods of hours of the day, or hours or days, not in overarching seasons. Yet we tend to think of our lives in terms of constructs of different sizes, our childhood, adolescence, young, old, spring when we clean, New Year's when we go to the gym, and, and fall when we drink pumpkin spice lattes. So we need these kind of rituals and segmentations so we can understand our own life and as more of a jumble of events. Now, in the New Atheist Movement, the most positive move, um, parts of it to me, and why I stayed and stayed more longer than it took to learn how to argue with people, was that there were those that did recognize this need uh, for at least rituals and made things like, oh, okay, I'm going to host a party every Friday night. That's my church, and it'll basically just be a mixer. And, uh, and I went to those. Others were like lectures and, and social gatherings and with food and going to the bar and, uh, you know, and all that normal, normal good stuff. Some of it's been packaged together into Sunday assembly, which... Uh, a fellow green in the area is interested in kind of not maybe calling it doing it Sunday assembly, but something like it, where they're at least at the very least we're having weekly potlucks of like-minded people. Food Not Bombs kind of acted like that for me because there was a number of anarchists and stuff that we would go, and there's the social smear nights and other green, you know, and greens like we we want to do regular social events though, they were more seasonal. So, yeah, so, so every kind of organization, group, or whatever. Like, we want clubs. We need them. We need to interact right. uh, with people outside our circles to have that, that sweet spot of 150, you know, the Dunbar number. And while Armstrong is by no means the only person to identify different categories of truth and the strength in her categorization has been debated by different classicists, it was struck by her ideas more than anything else in Laycock's book. Indeed, in the years since I've been thinking about these two concepts, in relation to all sorts of things. It has become a lens for which everything suddenly appears to me in a new light. It helps to explain the satanic panic. Yes, but this rejection of Mephos didn't die in the 80s. In fact, the denial is everywhere in our culture, and it is can partially explain why so much of our approach to everything artistic, challenging, or mysterious seems reductive, dull, and unimaginative. Why even our horrific... Movies about dystopia or our games. It also offers an explanation for why, when evangelical Christianity came under heavy criticism in the late 90s and early 2000s, the critics themselves formed a culture, new atheism, that now seems unbearably trite, reveling in arrogant nitpickery and skilled only in missing the point. While the new atheist concerns about the influence of religion and government might have seemed refreshing to many in the 2000s, in retrospect, the worldview they espouse now seems incomplete. Not false, necessarily, but simply unequipped to deal with the more complex and unanswerable questions about a world, like how to do politics. Leading many to the conclusion that two-dimensional appeals... Oh yeah, I also want to tack on that it wasn't just the, the debate of platforming Ken Ham that was kind of my turning point, but it was also when... Point, but when the Obama administration came in in 08, new atheism had been going for at least two or three years, and like the height of the secular movement, right, was or their like their big day 
was a meeting with three of the Obama administration's cabinet secretaries. Hmm. Or if not them, but their assistants, right? Oh, we're lobbying the highest levels of government. And that was it. That was like the big, right. you know, we, we made it. Or rather, after eight years of Bush, like, this was like, we're in government now. Like, we're allowed in. Like, this is us not being oppressed. Like, we were oppressed before. We were, we're not in government. Now we are. And we have a voice in government. And I'm like, meeting with the undersecretaries? This is your form of, like, empowerment? This is supposed to empower me? And I'm just, you know, flip the table, you know. It's like, no right. way, man. I'm done with that. And that's when I started thinking about socialism a little more seriously. <clears throat> or at least it created the space where I could. Think of Richard Dawkins berating Minit Hassan for believing Muhammad ascended to heaven on a winged horse and unable to do anything but sputter, oh, come on, in response to the idea that, yes, a highly educated man could believe in miracles. Or Neil deGrasse Tyson's complaints about the inaccuracy of descriptions of the moon and the lyrics of love songs. Though I think when Tyson does that, he's being <laughs> cheeky. I don't think he's being that serious. D uh, Dawkins, however, is a stodgy old coot who is taking things way too seriously. This rejection of imagery, symbolism, and any higher meaning that cannot be reduced to the literal has become especially pervasive in contemporary art criticism. This is not to say that there isn't still great art criticism. It's just that the internet has led to a greater volume of all of it. As much has been dominated by a worldview that seems to reject metaphor, symbolism, mood, tone, so on, or at least render them secondary to plot. Plot being the literal events that happen. And no more. Ignoring the possibility that other aspects of the creation can comprise essential parts of understanding. One of the most popular genres of movie criticism is the ending explained videos, where any ambiguity or multiplicity of meaning you felt at the end of a film that you may have just seen can be cleared away like spilled popcorn. Nitpicking art criticism, right? Uh, the video essayist Dan Olson made a video in his YouTube channel, Folding Ideas. Look for that. I, I, have, explained, I have watched his work. Let's see. There, there's also the the mention of the, the the everything wrong with videos, which were very popular. Yeah. But what I really like is I forget who was doing it, but some other YouTuber who was doing critique of everything wrong with by making a few videos where it's like everything wrong with the everything wrong with videos, where they call out how the everything wrong with videos are done by. Yeah. A bunch of liar. Not only pedantic, pedantic stuff is like we're explaining right now what the problem with it is. It's taking everything too literally. It has no room for the subjective. They, but it's also they lie. They lie about stuff. Like they didn't actually watch the movie or something, or they lie in a way where you have people who haven't seen the movie and now they're going to think the movie is terrible or is full of plot holes when really it didn't have plot holes or right. it didn't have these issues. Like, it will mention problems or things wrong that actually didn't actually, not in the movie. And that, that, that's what's truly like, Ugh. Oh, yeah, and it mentions a, um, the writer mentions a, uh, oh, yeah, I, I want to get to this one. As Olsen notes, this is not to say that 
no one who makes these explainer videos is completely unfamiliar with the concept of metaphors. It is more that they are considered secondary. Bonus feature. An extra level one can consider if one is into that sort of thing. But not something that may displace the real truth. Primary. Uh, of whether the spooky alien dies at the end. Wow. An earlier video of his, Olson's, uh, The Thermian Argument, Iswaska rated the tendency of genre fans to excuse problematic content by referencing justifications from the lore as if the fictional worlds they loved were literally real and not the deliberate constructions of an author. Example, No, it's not weird that the house elves are slaves. The books explain that they like being slaves. Right. <laughs> exactly. These two video essays target slightly different phenomenon, but phenomenon which are manifestations of the same root of the problem. The fan loses sight of why the author chose to populate the world that way in the first place. All of this creation, real as it may feel to an enthusiastic audience, was the product of ideas that are worthy of discussion. A literal-minded fan are fumes of the memory man, able to identify every Star Wars character and their backstory in perfect detail, but with no ability to step back and ask themselves why a story about rebelling against an empire makes people feel good, and whether maybe they should think about that the next time they put forth an opinion on Black Lives Matter. Not only that, but if someone tried to connect the two within their earshot, this sort of fan might be dismissive, even indignant. The Star Wars characters live in another universe, where Black Lives Matter does not exist. They can't symbolize or draw comparisons with anything in our world, because they're not of our world. It's almost as if the fans believe they are actually people and not artistic right. creations. So these aren't necessarily right-wingers. This isn't just a right-wing phenomenon or something that makes someone right-wing, but like when when Vosh is like having debating callers or, or any left tuber right. is, is talking and, and arguing, a lot of this is happening. A lot of this literalism. Not to say literal, like you can't take things literally, but it's just not the only thing. So another example from uh, is, is a game, or it's a YouTube series called Pets Cop, um, which I did not know about, so maybe I'll watch them now. And it's basically like um, a video version of a creepypasta. Hmm. And the, the creators just simply ended it, said that it was done. And the fan base were... Uh, fuming. So as soon as the creator confirmed the series had finished, scores of fans seethed in rage and disappointment, mad that there was no quote-unquote explanation of what it all meant. They felt their time had been wasted. People had written entire documents on the windmill time travel theory, or the hypnotism theory, or rebirthing. Whatever theory would take the enthralling, upsetting, utterly profound experience they'd had with the series and break it down into a series of coherent plot points. Many called the sudden ending a cop-out, declaring the creator must have got stuck and messed up. If there was no clear answer, then as a series, it was useless. If it didn't have a sensible plot, with a character doing things and experiencing events literally, coherent order, it, it just wasn't possible to have meaning. Many Pets Cop fans are young, and it is possible that this short-sightedness is just a matter of an experience with difficult, meaning challenging, media. Nonetheless, I wish I could pin this message to the Reddit threads. The parts you can't explain, that's where the art is. Last paragraph. All the stories in humanity's history that have had a lasting impact on us, from the Bible to Greek myths to the X-Men franchise, 
have been rich in meaning beyond the literal words and events they offer us. Whether it's striking the right emotional note, enveloping us in a fantasy world, making us reflect on our own lives, inviting a search for meaning, provoking discussion, and giving us experiences we can't explain, the role of art has always been so much more than laying out a linear plot, complete with all the mundane details of exactly how character X got to location Y in a way that feels realistic. The undercurrent of excessive literalism and obsession with story mechanics that plagues modern fandoms and criticism is pernicious. It denies us the tools we need to find meaning in art, to understand art. We need mythos, which means we need mythos to live. And all this, in my mind, also applies to doing politics and living, living in a society. Pretty cool, right? Yeah, it is really cool. Um, I like this one. This was, I think this was a good show. Yeah, thank you. I, I try my best to kind of grab things around. I was actually like, I was, I just had this solar punk stuff, but I, I put aesthetics as like a topic title of like, cause I had, I, I grabbed the, the art, um, thing and I'm like, yeah, this should really, this show should also be about like creativity in general and how we, there needs to be balance, right? There needs to be balance. Right. So, so, uh, I did, I did the general, um, tally thing of uh you know support us please interact with us listening society we need to do listening politics i want to listen to people so my profound thanks for listening this important skill is talking that we are developing so i plan to listen to any constructive feedback though i get very little of it so the most important thing is to put the ideas thinking and projects talked about here in practice for yourself write some solar punk fiction or read some it's hard to get your hands on I just want to, I'll end with a mention of like, there was this collective where this like, we're going to allow 88 people to join our little writing group. And it was also dues. They want dues to be in a writing group. So it's a little more of a commitment than I'm willing to do. But the idea is like, you can, we can write as a group, as a collective, like, which is produces really good work. And one of the first stories they were working on was where it's like it's a it's a future uh, British city where it's like because crime is so low, cops really have nothing to do. And so the opening line is like, you know, Detective McCready was you know drinking on duty, but people didn't really care. Cops didn't really have much to do. You know, right. that's that's like that's utopian. Just like crime is so down, cops like there's no violence. You know, whatever. 